Good morning, church. If you'll turn in your copy of Scripture with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we're considering verses 18 and 19. We're jumping into the text this morning in the middle of Paul's prayer that we began to consider last week. Last week, we saw that, that Paul thanked God for the genuine faith that he gr- had granted the Ephesians, which was demonstrated through their love for all the saints. We observed last week that uh, given his confidence about their faith, Paul is praying that God would illumine their minds and hearts to the reality of who God is and what He's done for them. And today, as we consider the the text, we observe what Paul specifically is concerned that their minds and hearts be illuminated to. There are three things that the Apostle mentions that he wants the Ephesians to grasp about what God has accomplished in granting them faith. And it's, it's, it's worthy of note at the outset today that, that what Paul desires for them is a deeper embrace of what has already been granted to them. He's not asking for God to grant them these things that we read about today. He's asking that God would help them become more aware, more certain, more solidly settled in what is already true of the Ephesians. As is typical of all New Testament writers. Paul is saying that the key to living the Christian life lies in a deeper, fuller, more confident appreciation of who we already are and what God has already given us in Christ. You know, on uh, social media, if you're at all familiar with it, you know that there's a, a place on everyone's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I don't know. I don't know about TikTok. I'm not really so familiar with that. But there's a place there for all users to to give a, a bio of themselves and give just a, a a brief description of who they are. And one of my favorites that I've seen from a Christian thinker is one that reads, a weak, needy sinner struggling daily to become who I already am. And that is really the biography of every Christian. We are but weak, needy sinners who are on a path called sanctification Not to self-actualize, but to live in conformity with who God has already made us to be. The verses before us today detail, to a great degree, what God has done for us and who He has made us in Christ. As such, it's our task now to consider these realities granted to us in salvation And how a greater understanding of these things enables us to live in greater conformity to Christ. As I said, Paul focuses on on three things. 
hope, inheritance, and power. As such, these are the divisions of the sermon this morning as well. So those three things in mind, look now to the text with me. Our sermon text is Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, but we're going to read the flow of Paul's thought from verse 15. So look to the text with me now, and let's hear what the Spirit says to the church. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to to the working of His great might. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, friends. Father God, what more can we ask this morning as we come to Your Word than what what Paul prays for? That You would give us now, Lord, a, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of You. Father, we we ask as those who are unable on our own to grasp spiritual realities, God, that you would illumine our minds and that you would give us in illuminating your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us, Lord, a, a grander, greater vision of you. And that in beholding you, God, that we would worship you. Father, we pray that you would keep me now free from error as I seek to open your word to your people. And that as Greg prayed a moment ago, you would give us faith to receive your word, ears of faith to receive your word. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first of what we are to consider this morning from the text is this matter of hope that Paul speaks of here. As we pick up where we left off last week with verse 18, we read here that Paul asks God that the Ephesians might know certain things. And it's important that we stop, even at this point in the text, to appreciate what the apostle is communicating here. We already observed this last week as we understood what is meant by his praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. Verses 18 and 19 just elaborate on that. But, but notice with me again that, that the Bible does not lay the path to growth in godliness any place else but straight through the conscious mind. This is very important, friends. To grow in the knowledge of God in order to become more like God, we must not neglect the engagement of our mind. Friends, Orthodox Christianity is not just a matter of intellectual assent or or agreement. But Orthodox Christianity is not less than a matter of the intellect. Paul is saying here that, that the faith 
of the saints is rooted in an understanding of objective truth. Those objective truths are applied to us subjectively. They inform our subjective experience. But growth in godliness is not initiated, Paul says, experientially. It's initiated by an embrace of objective truth. Truth that exists external to ourselves and works then to change us internally. In recognizing this, then, we're ready then to, to receive the substance of the objective truth that Paul says he wants us to come to embrace more fully. And the first of these truths is that he wants the Ephesians and, and us to know what is the hope to which God has called you. And what must be seen is that in, in, in each of these three realities that the apostle desires for Christians to embrace more fully. The emphasis, friends, is on God. You can hear it as Paul speaks of the hope to which He has called you and the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. In the original Greek, this line about hope reads, what is His hope to which He has called you. That is to say that the amazement that Paul says should strike you and and lead you to greater worship of God is the fact that your calling is from God. And then the calling referred to here is what theologians refer to as the effectual call that saves believers. Good theologians draw a distinction between what's known as the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of God. The general call is the call that goes out to all humanity to believe the saving work of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's the general call. But the effectual call of God, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. This is the the effectual call of God that takes a working of His Spirit to produce in His children. In effect, what, what Paul is underscoring is the fact that for Christians, God has spoken and you heard Him. And that is a glorious reality. God has has overcome our spiritual deadness and He's made us alive. In drawing us to Himself, God has given us ears to hear Him. This is what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 10, verse 27, when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What is the purpose of being made to hear the voice of God? In other words, what is the benefit of being made to hear this calling? 
Well, Paul says here that there is a hope that this call results in. But, but, but how do we understand this hope? What's the, the substance of this hope? What kind of hope is it that Paul's talking about? Well, if we return to John chapter 10, Jesus elaborates on what it means that we've been made to hear his voice saying, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The hope to which he has called you is eternal life. And we must note that when the New Testament uses this term, hope, we cannot rightly understand it if we read it in the way that the word hope is most often used today. Hope in the scriptures is not used to speak of a wish. It's used to speak of a confident assurance. Hope signifies a settled expectation of a reality that is not yet experienced. Let me say that again. Hope signifies the settled expectation of a reality that is not yet fully experienced. Believers experience salvation and and fellowship with God in this life. Still yet, there is a greater, fuller, more complete salvation that awaits us at death. When believers then pass from this temporary life into Eternal life in the unbridled presence of God. So what the apostle is saying he desires is that believers would come to know and embrace more fully the reality that God has directed his favor and love towards us in a way that he has then made us to hear his voice. We are objects, Paul is saying, of the Favor and love of God. And that in setting his, His call on us, He's made us alive. Not only as long as we're, we're earthbound has He made us alive, but th- this call has pierced through the darkness to set on us eternal life instead of eternal death. And when we, when we speak of this <clears throat> hope of eternal life, we're conveying a concept that words really can't do justice. Eternal life is often thought of as just an, an endless number of years. But that's really not an accurate conception of eternal life. It, it certainly involves an infinite time. But to speak of eternal life is to speak of a life that we've been granted in both a qualitative sense and a quantitative sense. Eternal life is life without end, of course, but it's a life of infinite joy and pleasure that God has granted to us in this call. It's both quantitative and qualitative. The prayerful longing of the apostle is that we would appreciate this call of God. This call that was God's to issue. This call that we had no right to receive. This call that we had no ability to hear. And in our natural state that we had no desire for. 
But it is God's to issue. And in Christ, we are made then to gladly receive this invitation to boundless bliss in God in eternal life. So if, if then it is Paul's prayer in verse 17 that we have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, then, then how does an appreciation of the sovereign call of God grow us in the knowledge of God Himself? And the answer is that in the meditation on what God does with His effective call to eternal life, it, it reveals the character and nature of God Himself. When we meditate on what God does, His acts and His deeds, we understand He is more. We understand specifically when we we meditate on Him and and His acts towards us that He is more than we can comprehend. And in His acts that He directs towards us, He is more gracious than we can comprehend. And this feeds right into Paul's second desire for the Ephesians. That is, he wants them to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The second thing Paul calls us to to see and appreciate is this matter of inheritance. So, now as we turn to consider this, this is not Paul's first mention of the saints' inheritance. In verse 11, remember, Paul stated that in him we have obtained an inheritance. And we took notice at that point that when the apostle speaks of inheritance in this chapter, it's somewhat difficult to discern whether he, he means the inheritance that God gives the saints or the inheritance of God that is the saints. And with careful attention as we spent considering verse 11, it's best to conclude that Paul is not speaking about one to the exclusion of the other. Rather, Paul sets forth the idea that uh, according to verse 5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Therefore, by faith in Christ, we become God's. And having become his children, his heirs, we then receive an inheritance. We, we've also seen from verse 11 just, just what our inheritance consists of. Paul's expressed desire is for believers like us to come to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we understand why Paul would emphasize that this inheritance is gloriously rich when we grasp, as we did from verse 11, that God Himself is our inheritance. From the the, the days of the Old Testament, God's people have, have always rightly been motivated by their inheritance. The Old Testament makes much of the inheritance of the, the promised land. But what made the promised land so glorious. It was that there, the Israelites could worship God freely. 
it, it was that there the temple was built in Jerusalem where the presence of God dwelt. The inheritance of God's people, friends, is God. As we are saved to be God's heritage, our inheritance is Him. It is a a fleshly thing to fix our eyes on the material realities of the inheritance of God's people in heaven. In my experience, it is worldly-minded Christians who, who fix their attention on things like pearly gates and streets of gold and mansions, even departed loved ones. It, it, it was the fleshly Jews in the Old Testament that focused their attention on the actual land. And it's today, worldly-minded Christians, that focused their attention on, these, on the material realities of the inheritance that God grants to His people. There are hymns that, that elevate these things. And I hate them. Because there's a hollowness about focusing on these things. Instead of focusing our attention and desires on the inheritance of God Himself. It really begs the question. If heaven were furnished with all of these secondary things, but God wasn't there, would we be satisfied? Let's say there was no more hostility. There's no more sickness or sadness. If heaven had everything that equaled happiness and comfortability, but God wasn't there, would you be satisfied, friends? As impossible as that scenario is, it's a question that we should ask ourselves. Because the the, the true answer to that question, the one that only you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can discern, the answer to that question reveals to us just how much we love God versus how much we love the stuff that accompanies God. Paul is saying that his prayer is that we would fix our minds on God. Because spiritual maturity and health comes in affixing our love and affections on God, who is our inheritance. Friends, this is why we seek to be a God-centered church. Under our written out, ministry convictions. You'll find that we're committed to be a church that is God-centered, word-driven, and gospel-focused. Each of these things are important, but what a church keeps at its center cannot be overstated. The degree, the degree of spiritual maturity in a church can usually be measured in direct correlation to what they keep at the center. And the only right answer to what belongs front and center is God. If man, or what is sometimes disguised as reaching people, being seeker sensitive, if if man is at the center of a church, then you aren't worshiping God. You're worshiping man. If prosperity is at the center of a church, then you aren't worshiping God. You're worshiping money or power. 
If racial reconciliation is at the center of a church, you're worshiping a blessing of God in the gospel, not God. The list goes on and on of things that I could step on a lot of people's toes about. But I'll refrain. Because the the bottom line is that Paul's earnest prayer to God is that believers like us would focus their minds on the gloriously rich inheritance that is God. The point in, in meditating on our inheritance of God is to grow in our adoration of God. You'll only appreciate what is to be inherited insofar as you value what is to be inherited. So the way that we come to know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints is to set our minds on that inheritance who is God. Whereas the the first part of verse 17, knowing the hope to which He has called you, would involve dwelling on the acts of God in salvation. Here, Paul would encourage us to meditate on the person of God. And that may involve systematically studying the attributes of God. If you're interested in that, I have some resources that I could point you to. But it may be as simple as developing an ongoing habit of identifying attributes of God in your personal Bible reading time. Whatever the method, this method should be rooted in the Scriptures and we should maintain it as an ongoing discipline. Because Paul is clear here that his earnest desire is that we would fix our attention on our inheritance. And there is no greater, no more true inheritance than we get in the gospel but God. And with that, we turn to reflect on the third and final thing that Paul prays for believers to know. That is, he wants us to appreciate the power of God. In verse 19, Paul gives us the the final what that he wants those at Ephesus along with us to realize, saying, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, Paul is no stranger to the use of exalted language, right? This whole chapter is saturated with high-flying language to expound on the magnificence of God and His work of salvation. But verse 19 stands out as particularly characterized by superlatives. Paul doesn't simply say that he desires for the Ephesians to know about His power towards us who believe. I mean, that would be fruitful in and of itself for our study. After all, this term, power, captures the essence of the fact that God has worked in a supernatural way to grant us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 3. That that word power is associated with miraculous power in the original language. Denoting just how beyond our ability these blessings of God would be for us on our own. But he labors to express the profound nature of this 
power that God has exhibited toward the saints by using these adjectives, immeasurable and greatness. And he does so to to further clarify that the power of God towards believers belongs in no other category than divine. It is immeasurable, he says. Church, who alone possesses power without measure? God. And so he is saying this is a supernatural, otherworldly power at work toward the saints. And this is made even more clear when we note that verse 19 is not a complete sentence. Verse 19 is inextricably linked to verse 20 because Paul associates the power that God works toward us who believe with the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But the connection to verse 20 doesn't just crystallize our understanding of the divine nature of this power. It illumines the purpose of this power of God towards us. Verse 19 shows us that this power is exercised specifically toward us who believe. Verse 19. And then verse 20 says that this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And if that were enough, then Paul goes on in chapter 2 using parallel language to express this same idea. Look at chapter 2 in verse 4 through 6 with me. He says there, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see there the the parallel terms between chapter 1 verse 19 and chapter 2 verse 6? What the apostle is saying is that he wants us to grasp that the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead is the power that He worked in us to make us believe and raise us from the dead. So so the whole flow of Paul's three-layered desire here is that we would understand the wonder that is God's effective personal calling which results in our getting God for an inheritance. And he wants us to see that this is all made possible solely by the working of his divine, miraculous power. I sometimes hear people speak about their testimony and say, you know, I I don't really have some big testimony, some great working of God changed the trajectory of my life. I just simply grew up in church. I can't remember a time that I didn't really believe. And over time, I've just come to embrace the the truth of the gospel. And I, I know that I believe it. Friend, there is no normal. There is no 
ordinary belief. There is only the supernatural, miraculous working of the power of God to make a dead sinner alive and believe. What Paul is getting at here is that we should appreciate this power of God working in us, no matter what your history is, no matter what your personal story is. The story is that you were dead and God made you alive. And in this, it exalts God and says that salvation is a work of Him, not us. Friends, I'm not trying to present a polemic for Reformed theology, but it's unequivocally clear from the Scriptures here that to understand salvation as anything other than the working of God's divine grace outside of us and towards us, the failure to understand that is a failure to take hold of what Paul's praying for here. I think the common illustration of salvation being expressed in the story of a person who falls off of a ship at sea in the midst of a raging storm. Fighting to swim and grasp for air. How is one saved from certain death? Well, the Arminian answer to that, based on their theology, is that the one fighting for air is thrown a life preserver. But they must have enough life and energy within themselves to reach out and take hold of it. The clear teaching of Paul in this passage is that we've all died and have sunk to the bottom of the ocean floor. There is no life in us. But God comes to us in our helpless state with all of His power to bring us to the surface and give us life anew. The the apostle prays that we see that the new birth requires a miracle to occur. A miracle that's empowered by the same resurrection power required to raise Christ from the grave. Now the, the question remains, How does an understanding of these things grow us in our knowledge of God? In other words, what difference does understanding these things really make in our Christian life? The answers to these questions are numerous. But let me mention a few. When we grasp the reality of God's effectual call, it personalizes our relationship to God. Now, the truth is that everyone has a personal relationship to God. It's either one of enmity or one of loving fellowship. And if one's come to faith in Christ, they they have a greater understanding of this personal relationship to God than an unbeliever. But what Paul's saying here is that focused meditation on what the Bible says about God's act in space-time history to call you by name like he called Saul on the road to Damascus, to bring you to himself, the contemplation on that elevates and intensifies your daily walk with God. It personalizes your relationship with God. It grows you in your ability to pray, Abba, Father, 
Instead of just talking to him like some impersonal deity. And out of that, it it deepens our trust in him from day to day as we come to see and embrace him more as a loving father who sees us and knows us intimately. The reflection on our inheritance of God deepens our grasp of the grace of God. We say, well, the understanding of the call personalizes our relationship with God all the more. Leading us to call out Abba Father. Some of you may have had a relationship with your earthly father that wasn't all that great. You had a personal relationship with him, but, but sometimes you think that it was, might have been better if you didn't. But when, when we consider the God who has given himself by inheritance to us in the gospel, we come to see that he hasn't just bestowed on us a bunch of good things. No, in Christ, he has given us himself, the fountain of all good things and all goodness. He is the, from, the one from whom which all good things flow. We read in the scriptures in Romans 8 just a moment ago, how will he not graciously with Christ give us all things? And so we make it a point to study his, his being and his character to ascertain what treasure we have in obtaining him. Because in obtaining Him, we have obtained every good thing. And we give our minds, lastly, to to thinking on the power of God. That He has worked towards us in order to see that He's not just a personal God. And He's not just a God who wants good for us. But He is a God who is able by His divine power, to grant these good things to us. He's not just personal. He's not just good. He is able to give you good in Himself. Meditation on the the power He's worked to save us not only produces a a more accurate view of our inability to save ourselves, it, it produces an amazement at His ability to save us from our helpless state. And beyond that, it produces a confidence in in both the security of our salvation and our ability to pursue holiness in sanctification. If God has the power to save us, He certainly has the power to sustain us. Friends, do you see? There is so much to be gleaned from these three things that Paul lays out here. There is so much of the Christian life to be enriched by focusing our minds on the reality of God that Paul lays out in these three points. It's in reflection on this last point of the power of God that enables us to believe and to sing with gusto the words that we'll sing here in just a moment. No guilt in life No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. 
From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Amen. Let's pray and sing that. Father God, we are so grateful for the realities that you have granted us in salvation. And it's our prayer, Lord, that now you would help us to understand those things more. And God, that in understanding those things more, we would treasure you. And in treasuring you, Lord, that we would give ourselves in devotion, service, love, praise, and adoration to you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.